Hey everyone, how's it going? This is Jake Ramirez, and welcome back to Listening Along. I hope everyone has been having a great day, or maybe just getting their morning started, or ending it off. Who knows? But either way, I hope it's great. Now, we're just going to go ahead and jump right back in to good old First to Die by James Patterson. Chapter 13 The joke and homicide about the morgue was that, in spite of the lousy climate, the place was good for business. There's nothing like the sharp smell of formaldehyde or the depressing scent. There's nothing like the sharp smell of formaldehyde or the depressing sheen of hospital tiled halls to make the drudgery of chasing down dead leads seem like inspired work. But as they say, that's where the bodies are. That, and I got to see my buddy Claire. There wasn't much to say about Claire Wa- Washburn, except that she was brilliant, totally accomplished, and absolutely my best friend in the world. For six years, she had been the sh- city's chief medical examiner, which everyone in Homicide knew was an underdeserving was as underdeserving a title as there was, since she virtually ran the office for Anthony Rigetti. Rigetti is her is her overbearing, power-thumping, credit-stealing boss, but Claire rarely complains. In our book, Claire is the office of the coroner. But maybe the idea of female ME still didn't cut it, even in San Francisco. Female and black. When Rayleigh and I arrived, we were ushered into Claire's office. She was wearing her white doctor's coat with the nickname Butterfly embroidered on the upper left pocket. The first thing you noticed about Claire was that she was carrying 50 pounds she didn't need. I'm in shape, she always joked. Rounds of shape. The second was her bright, confident demeanor. You mean she couldn't give a damn? You knew she couldn't give a damn. She had the body of a Brahmin and the mind of a hawk and the gentle soul of a butterfly. As we walked in, she gave me a wary but satisfied smile, as if she'd been up working lot. I'm sorry. She'd been up working most of the night. I introduced Rayleigh and Claire. Flashed me on. Flashed me an impression wagged of the of the eyes. Whatever I have accumulated over the years in street smarts, she threw off in natural wisdom. How she balanced the demands of her job and placating her credit-seeking boss with raising two teenage kids. And her marriage to Edmund, who played bass drum for San Francisco Symphony Orchestra, gave me faith that there was still hope for the institution. I've been expecting you, she said as we hugged. I called you last night from here. Didn't you get the message? With her comforting arms around me, a flood of emotion welled up. I wanted to tell her everything. If it weren't for railing, I think I would have spilled it all. Or in dollar, negles, right there. I was beat, I answered. And beat up. Long, tough day. Don't tell me, Rayleigh chuckled. You guys have met. Standard autopsy preparation. Claire grinned as we pulled apart. Don't they teach you that stuff down at City Hall? He playfully spread his arms. Uh Uh-huh, said Claire, squeezing my shoulder. This you gotta earn, anyway. She regained a tone of seriousness. Seriousness. I finished the preliminaries just this morning. You want to see the bodies? I nodded yes. Just to be prepared, these two don't make much of an advertisement for modern bride she led us through a series of closed compression doors toward the vault the large refrigerated room where the bodies were stored 
I walked ahead with Claire, who pulled me close and whispered, Let me guess. You gave Jacoby a kiss on the nose, and all of a sudden there was this charming prince. <laughs> he works for the mayor now. He works for the mayor, Claire, I smiled back, then sent him here to make sure I don't faint at the first sign of blood. In that case, she replied, pushing the heavy door to the vault open. You better hold on to that man tight. Alright, chapter 14. I had been having very close encounters with dead bodies for six years now. The multiple, the mutilated bodies of the bride and groom were lying side by side. They were on gurneys, their faces frozen in the horrifying moment of the deaths. David and Melanie Brent. In their stark, ghostly expressions was the st strongest statement I have ever seen that life may not be governed by anything fair or clement. I locked on the face of Melanie yesterday in her wedding dress. She had seemed somehow magic, somehow tragic and tranquil. Today, in her slashed, naked starkness, her body has, was snarled in a freeze frame of grotesque horror. Everything I had buried deep yesterday rushed to the surface again. Six years in homicide, and I have never turned away, but I turned away now. I felt Claire's hand bolstering my arm, and I leaned into her. To my surprise, it turned out to be Raven. I righted myself with a mixture of anger and embarrassment. Thanks, I exhaled. I'm okay. I've been doing this job eight years, Claire said, and this one, I wanted to turn away myself. She picked up a folder from an examining table across from David Brandt. She pointed to the raw, gaping knife wound on the left side of his chest. He was stabbed once in the right ventricle. You can see here, the blade pierced the juncture between the fourth rib and the sternum on the right end. Ruptured the AV node, which provides the heart electrical power technically. He arrested. He died of a heart attack? Rayleigh asked. She pulled a pair of tight surgical gloves over her hands and red lacquered nails. Electromechanical disassociation. Just a fancy way of describing what happens when you get stabbed in the heart. What about the weapon I spoke of? At this point, all I know is that it was a standard straight-edge blade. No distinguished, no distinguishing marks or entry pattern. One thing I can tell you is that the killer was medium height. Anywhere from 5'7 to 5'10 and right-handed, based on the angle of impact. You can see here on the path. You can see here the path of the incision is angled slightly upward. Here. She said, poking around the wound. The groom was six feet. On his wife, who was five five, the angle of the first incision was slanted in a downward path. I checked the groom's hands and arms for abrasions. Any signs of a struggle? Couldn't. The poor man was scared right out of his mind. I nodded as my eyes fell on the groom's face. Claire shook her head. That's not exactly what I meant. Charlie Clapper's boy scraped up samples of a fluid from the groom's shoes and the hardwood floor in the foyer where he was found. <clears throat> she held up a small vial containing droplets of a cloudy liquid. Rayleigh and I st stared at it, uncomprehending. Urine, explained Claire. The poor man apparently went in his pants, wet in his pants, went in his pants. Must have been a gusher. She pulled a white sheet over David Brandt's face and shook her head. I figure that's one secret we can keep to ourselves. Unfortunately, she said with a sigh. Things didn't happen nearly as swiftly for the bride. She led us over to the bride's gurney. Maybe she surprised him. There are marks on her hands and wrists that indicate a struggle. Here, she pointed to a reddened abrasion on her neck. 
I tried to lift some tissue from under her nails, but we'll see what comes back. Anyway, the first wound was on the upper abdomen and tore through the lungs. With time given the loss of blood, she might have died from that. She pointed to a second and third ugly incision under the left breast in a similar location to the groom's. Her pericardium was filled with so much blood you could have wrung it out like a, like a wet dish rag. You're getting technical again, I said. The tissue-like membrane around the heart. Blood collects in, his, in this space and compresses the muscle so that the heart can no longer fill with blood from the main return. Ultimately, it ends up strangling itself. The image of the bride's heart choking on her own heart. On her own blood chilled. And almost, it's almost as if you wanted to duplicate the wounds, I said, studying the knife entry points. I thought of that, said Claire. Straight line to the heart. Barely furrowed his brow. So the killer could be professional? Claire shrugged. By the technical pattern of the wounds? Perhaps. But I don't think so. There was a hesitancy in her voice. I looked up and fixed on, on her grim eyes. So what I need to know is, was she sexually molested? She swallowed. There are clear signs of some sort of post-mortem penetration. The, the vaginal mucosa. I know that's mucus. I just don't know how to say it. <laughs> um, the vaginal mucosa was severely extended and I found small lacerations around the introitus. My body stiffened in rage. She was raped? If she was raped, Claire replied, it was a very bad deal. The vaginal cavity was as wide as it's, as I've ever seen it. Honestly, I don't think we're talking penile entry at all. Blunt instrument, really said? Certainly wide enough. But there are abrasions along the vaginal walls, consistent with some kind of ring. Claire took in a breath. Personally, I'd go with the fist. The angry, shocking nature of Melanie Brandt's death shivered me again. She had been mutilated, defiled, a fist. It had a blunt, savage finality to it. Her assailant wasn't trying to act out, act out his nightmare, but wanted to shame her as well. Why? If you can handle one more thing, follow me, Claire said. She led us through a swinging door into an adjoining lap. On an apron of white sterile paper lay the blood-smeared tuxedo jacket we had found next to the groom. Claire picked it up by the collar. Clapper loaned it to me, of course. The obvious thing was to confirm whose blood was actually on it. The left front panel was slashed through with the fatal incision and sprayed with dark blotches of blood. Where this starts to get really interesting, said Claire, is that it wasn't just David Brandt's blood that I found on the, on the front of the jacket. Rayleigh and I gaped in, gaped in surprise. The killers, he said, wide-eyed. She shook her head. No, the brides. He made, I made a fast recollection of the crime scene. The groom had been killed at the door. His wife, 30 feet away in the master bedroom. How could the bride's blood get on his jacket? I said, confused. I struggled with the same thing, so I went back and lined up the, the jacket against the room's torso. The slash mark didn't quite match up with his wound. Look, the groom's wound was here, fourth rib. The slash marks on the jacket are, the, are three inches higher. Checking further, the damn jacket wasn't even the same, even the same brand as the pants. This is Joseph Abound. Joseph Abode. 
Claire winked, seeing the gears of my brain shift into place. The jacket wasn't the groom's. It belonged to the man who had killed him. Claire rounded her eyes. Ain't no professional I know would leave that behind. He could have been just trying to utilize the wedding as a cover, Rayleigh replied. An even more chilling possibility had already uh, struck me. He could have been a guest. Oh, pretty good. Chapter 15 At the offices of the San Francisco Chronicle, Cindy Thomas Thomas's frantic brain was just barely staying ahead of her fingers. The afternoon deadline was barely an hour away. From a, from a bellhop at the Hyatt, she had been able to obtain the names of two guests who had attended the Brant wedding and who were still at the hotel. After running down there again last night, she had been able to put together a heart-wrenching, tragic picture, complete with vows, toasts, and a romantic last dance of the bride and groom's final moments. All the other reporters were still piecing together the sparse details released by the police. She was ahead so far. She was winning, and it felt great. She was also certain this was the best writing she'd done since arriving at the Chronicle, and maybe since she'd been an undergraduate at Michigan. At the paper, Cindy's coup at the Hyatt had turned her into an instant celebrity. Celebrity. People she scarcely knew were suddenly stopping and congratulating her. Even the publisher, whom she rarely saw on the Metro floor, came down to find out who she was. Metro was covering some demonstration in Mill Valley about a construction rerouting that had built up traffic near a school zone. She was writing page one. As she typed, she noticed Sydney Glass, her city editor, coming up to her desk. Glass was known at the newspaper as El Cid. He parked himself across from her with a stiff sigh. We need to talk. Her fingers slowly settled to a halt as she looked up. I've got two very pissed off senior crime reporters itching to get into this. Susie's at City Hall awaiting a statement by the police chief and the mayor. Stones put together profiles on both families. They have 20 years and two Pulitzers between them. And it is their beat. Cindy felt her heart suddenly come to a stop. What did you tell them? She asked. In El Cid's hardened eyes, she could see the greedy first team crime staff, senior reporters with their own researchers, trying to hack their way in and carve the story up. Her story. Show me what you've got, the city editor finally said. He came around, peered over her shoulder, and read a few lines of the computer screen. A lot of it's okay. You probably know that. Anguished belongs over there, he said, pointing at the screen. It modifies Bride's father. Nothing pisses it amorous off like misplaced modifiers and inversions. Hmm. he could feel herself blushing. I know, I know. I'm trying to get this. Deadline's at. Hmm, I know when deadline is, the editor glowered. But down here, if you can get it in, you can get it right. You can get it in right. He studied Cindy for what seemed an interminable duration, a deep assessing stare that kept her on edge, especially if you intend to stay on this thing. Glass's general, implacable face twitched, and he almost smiled at her. I told him it was yours, Thomas. Cindy repressed an urge to hug the cranky, demonering editor right on the bullpen floor. You want me at City Hall? she asked. The real stories and that hotel suite. Go back to the Hyatt. El Cid began to walk away with his hands, as always, thrust into his trouser pockets. But a moment later, he turned back. Of course, if you intend to stay on the story, you better find a police source on the first on the inside and quick. Chapter 16. 
After leaving the morgue, Grayley and I walked back to the office, mostly in silence. Lots of details about the murders were bothering me. Why would the killer take away the victim's jacket? Why leave the champagne bottle? It made no sense. We've got a sex crime now, bad one. I finally turned on I finally turned on on the asphalt walkway leading to the hall. I want to run the autopsy results through Milt Fanning and the FBI computers. We also need to meet with the bride's parents. We'll need a history of anyone she may have been involved with before David, and a list of everyone at that wedding. Why don't we wait for some confirmation on that one, my new partner said, before we go all out on that angle. I stopped walking and stared at him. You want to see if anybody checked in for a bloody jacket with, with the lost and found? I don't understand. What's your concern? My concern, really said, is that I don't want the department intruding on the, on the grief of the families with a lot of hypocriticals until, until we have more to go on. We may or may not have a killer jacket. He may or may not be a guest, been a guest. Why do you think it belonged to the rabbi? Who do you think it belonged to? The rabbi? He flashed me a quick smile. It could have been left there to set us off. His tone seemed suddenly different. You're backing off, I asked him. I'm not backing off, he said. Until we have something firm. Every old boyfriend of the bride or casualty of some corporate downsizing Gerald Brandt had a hand in, had a hand and could be rolled out as a possible suspect. I'd rather the spotlight wasn't aimed back at themselves, unless we have something firm to go on. Here it was, the spiel, packaging, containing, Brandt, and Chancellor and Will, the bride's father, were VIPs. Find us the bad guys, Lindsay. Just don't put the department at any risk along the way. I chuffed back. <laughs> I thought the possibility that the killer could have been at the wedding was what we had to go on. All I'm suggesting, Lindsay, is let's get some confirmation before we begin ripping into the sex life of the best man. I nodded, all the while fixing on his eyes. In the meantime, Chris, we'll just follow up on our other really strong leads. We stood there in edgy silence. All right. Why do you think the killer changed jackets with the groom? I asked him. He leaned back against the edge of the cement retaining wall. My guess is that he was wearing it when he, when he killed them. It was covered with blood. He had to get out detected. Get out undetected. The groom's jacket was lying around, so he just switched it. So you figure he went all to all that trouble making a slash mark and all thinking no one was would notice. Different size, different maker, that it would just slip by, really. Really? <clears throat> Why did he leave it behind? Why wouldn't he stuff the bloody jacket into a bag or roll it under his picked jacket? Okay, really conceded. I don't know. Your guess is? I don't know why he had left it behind, but a chilling possibility was beginning to form in my mind. Possibility one, I answered. He panicked. Maybe the phone rang or someone knocked at the door. On their wedding night? You're starting to sound like my ex-partner. I started toward the hall. He caught up. He held the glass doors open for me. As I walked through the door, he took my arm. And number two? I stood there, looking squarely into his eyes, trying to assess the how far I could get with him. What's your real expertise here, anyway, I asked. He smiled, his look confident and secure. I used to be married. I didn't reply. Possibility two? A fear was building inside me. The killer was signing his murders. He was toying with us, purposely leaving clues. 
one-time crime of passion killers didn't leave clues like jacket. Professionals didn't either. Serials left clues. Hmm, all right. All right. Chapter fifteen. <clears throat> the window that Philip Campbell was starting out had a startling view of the bay, but he didn't really notice the sights. He was lost in his thoughts. It's fine. It's finally started. Everything is in play. He was thinking, the city on the bay will never be the same, will it? I will never be the same. This was complicated, but not what it seemed to be, but beautiful in its own way. He had closed his office door as he always did when he was absorbed in research. Lately, he had stopped catching lunch with his co-workers. They bored him. Their lives were filled with petty concerns. The stock market, the giants, and the 49ers. Where were they headed? Where were they headed on vacation? They had such shallow, simple, middle-class dreams. His was soaring. Were soaring. He was like the moguls, thinking up in the air. New, new things. Over in Sicilian Silicon Valley. Anyway, that was all in the past. Now he had a secret. The biggest secret in the world. He pushed his business papers to the corner of his desk. This is the old world, he thought. The old me. The boar. The worker bee. He unlocked the top left drawer of his desk. Behind the usual personal clutter was a small gray lockbox. It was barely large enough to hold a pocket of three, a packet of three by five inch cards. This is my world now. He thought back to the high up, the bride's beautiful porcelain face, the blossoms of blood on her crest, on her chest. He still didn't couldn't believe what had taken place. The sharp crack of the knife ripping through the cartilage. The, the gasp of her last breath and his, of course. What were their names? Oh, Jesus Christ, he'd forgotten. No, he hadn't. The Brants. And they were all over the newspaper and the TV news. With a key from his chain, he opened a small box. What spilled out into the room was the intoxicating spell of his dreams. A stack of index cards, neat and orderly, alphabetically arranged. One by one, he skimmed through them. New names, King, Merced, Passanu, Peterson, all the brides and grooms. Wow. Chapter 18. <clears throat> several, several urgent messages were on my desk when I got back from the morgue. Good. Urgent was appropriate. Charlie Clapper from CSU, preliminary report in. Some reporters from the AP, local television stations. Even the woman from the Chronicle, who had left from, left me her card. I picked out a grilled chicken and pear salad I had brought up as a dialed clapper back. Only good news, I joked as his voice came back on the phone. In that case, I can give you 900 numbers. I can give you a 900 number for two bucks a minute. They'll tell you anything you want to hear. I could hear, I could hear in the tone of his voice. You got anything? Tons of partials, Lindsay. The CSU chief replied, meaning inclusive Prince's team had lifted from the room. The brides, the grooms, the assistant managers, housekeepings, you dusted the bodies, I pressed. The killer had pulled Melanie Brandt up off the floor. And the box of champagne? Of course, nothing. Somebody was careful. What about off the floor? Fibers, shoe prints, besides the pee? Clapper laughed. You think I'm holding out on... On you? You're cute, Lindsay. But I get off on banging killers, on bagging killers more. Meanwhile, I've got some someone running that tux jacket under the microscope. I'll let you know. Roger will go. Thanks, Charlie. I muttered disappointedly as I flipped further through the 
my stack of messages, Cindy Thomas's name came to the top. <clears throat> Normally, I wasn't in the habit of phoning back reporters in the middle of an ongoing investigation, but this one had been smart and cool making her way up to the crime scene, yet kind of backing off when she had me cornered in the bathroom. I found out at her desk. I found her at my desk. Wait, I found her at her desk. Thanks for calling me back, Inspector. She said in an appreciative tone. I owed you, I guess. Thanks for cutting me some slack at the hotel. Happens to us all. But I have to ask, do you always react so professionally at a crime scene? You're a homicide detective, right? I didn't have the time or heart to get into a battle of wits, so I used Jacoby's line. It was a wedding. I always quiet them. What can I do for you, Miss Thomas? Cindy, I'm going to do you a favor. When I reach five, maybe you'll do one for me? We have a homicide, a very bad one. You're not going to play Let's Make a Deal, and if we meet again, you'll find out. You'll find. You'll find I'm not my cheeriest when I feel indebted. I guess what I was hoping for, she said, was to hear your spin on the bride and groom. Doesn't Tom Stone cover homicide for the Chronicle, I asked? I heard her taking a breath. I won't lie to you. I normally handle local interest out of Metro. Well, you got yourself a little story now. Marriage made in heaven ends up in hell. You're quick at the gate. Truth is, Inspector, her voice grew softer. I'd never seen anything like that before. Seeing David Brandt lying there on his wedding night? I know what you must think, but it's just not about the story. I like to help any way I can. I appreciate that. But since we got all these eager people with badges walking around here, we ought to give them a shot. Anyway, you should know that you seeking, sneaking your way up to the 13th, 30th floor didn't exactly get me invited to the commissioner's fort for brunch. I had tactical responsibility at the crime scene. I never thought I'd actually make it through. So we've established we don't know who owns whom here. Who owes whom here. But since it's my dime, the reporter's voice went back to her preemptory, preemptory, preemptory tone. I called to you to your reaction to a story we're going to break later today. You know the groom's father runs a buyout firm. Our business editor pulled off the Bloomberg, Bloomberg that they backed out of a proposal of a proposed agreement at the last minute with third largest Russian automaker, Kolya Novgorod. Brandt was providing up to $200 million for a significant stake. Kolya is one of those Russian conglomerates taken over by, by a new branch of black market capitalists. Without the cash, I'm told it's virtually bankrupt. My source tells me the mood got very fractious. I laugh. Fractious, Miss Thomas? I might be getting a little fractious myself. Apparently, some of the Russians were left hanging with their uncle Vanya's out. I laughed again. Conspiracy to commit murder is a federal crime, I told her. If there's something to it, you should call call to the justice. I just thought I'd let you know. In the meantime, you want to throw me a comment on any other possibilities you're looking into? Sure. I'd feel safe in saying that we're that they're ongoing. Thanks, she sighed. Have you narrowed in on any suspects yet? This is what they tell you to ask at the Chronicle. You know I can't divulge that. Off the record, no attribution, as a friend. As I listened, I remembered when I was a recruit, trying to elbow my way in, how the police world had been barred, closed off, until 
someone had opened up the tiniest crack to let me crawl through. Like I said, Miss Thomas, my tone started to soften. No promises. Cindy, the reporter said. At least call me Cindy. For the next time you get cornered in the bathroom with your guard down. Okay, Cindy. I'll be sure to keep you in mind. <clears throat> wow, okay. Alright, guys. So I think we'll go ahead and uh, end it right off of there. Leave it off of chapter 19. Wow, so quite a bit is going on, huh? Of course, let me know what you guys believe. Or maybe if you guys want me to you know, go into more detail about what I do believe is going on in the story. And, you know, my reactions to that. Because, man, this thing is crazy. But it is awesome. That's kind of why I love uh, Jim's passion. Because he gives more details. And, well, I like details. Not like the, the gluttony, you know, the, like, where people die. It's more like the medical. Just details in general, let's say. But I'll see you guys later. Take care. Bye.